French psychoanalyst and philosopher Jacques Lacan wrote, Who, then, is this other to whom I am more attached than to myself, since at the heart of my ascent to my own identity it is she who agitates me? Who is she? Who is this outside agitator who interrupts my ascent to my own identity? Voicing another perspective, psychiatrist Eric Byrne, founder of the School of Translational Analysis, considered that, quote, the man who is loved by a woman is lucky indeed, but the one to be envied is he who loves, however little he gets in return. How much greater is Dante gazing at Beatrice than Beatrice walking by him in apparent disdain? Is love one of the most supreme, most desirable experiences of human life? Carl Rogers proposed that receiving love in the form of unconditional positive regard was a crucial key to happiness and adjustment. Then Eric Frome shifted the emphasis from receiving to giving and proposed that learning the difficult art of love, as he called it, was the essential thing that promised self-realization, emotional satisfaction, and fulfilling insights. Unrequited love, one-sided infatuation, in other words, offers the ideal chance to separate and examine separately these two phenomena, loving on the one hand and being loved on the other. Since in unrequited love, one person gives love and the other is love. In their analysis of unrequited love, Roy F. Baumeister, Sarah R. Wattman, and Arlene M. Stilwell write, Perhaps neither loving nor being loved is enough. Only when they are combined in a relationship is there a significant chance for happiness. As we presented in detail in our episode on attraction and attractiveness, Research shows that although everyone tends to prefer a maximally attractive partner, that attractiveness is the most important factor not only in first encounter, but indeed throughout a relationship. Nevertheless, everyone tends to end up with a partner roughly equal to their own attractiveness. Attractive people, having a broad range of potential interested mates, will tend to choose each other preferentially as romantic partners, leaving less attractive individuals to pair up later, if at all. This mechanism requires, however, that the less attractive people will be disappointed in their initial attraction to partners more desirable than themselves. These disappointments are one category of unrequited love experiences. The reason for the unattractive person's rejection often lies in the fact that people are generally not attracted to less desirable others. The rejection also carries with it the symbolic message that the would-be lovers lack sufficient desirable qualities to be a suitable partner for the rejector. Romantic rejection is thus more than a mere frustration of romantic desire. It is a symbolic evaluation of one's deficient worth. In other words, a humiliating blow to one's self-esteem. We shall expand upon these effects later in this episode. Baumeister, Wattman, and Stilwell 
are rare among students of unrequited love in that they attempt to analyze the role of the rejector, the object of the unrequited love or infatuation, instead of the person who is infatuated. They argue that the role of the infatuated party, the would-be lover, is scripted by society and by media, by movies, songs, and TV. So many songs, so many movies about somebody who's in love with someone who doesn't return their love. It's endless. All kinds of stories about that. The rejector, by contrast, has very few scripts to rely on. The rejector is often, and not by choice, cast in the role of the interpersonal villain. The rejector is thus often subject to the mum effect, the reluctance to transmit bad news. On top of that is the fact that the rejector's reluctance to transmit bad news is complemented by the infatuated person's reluctance to hear it. Furthermore, as Rosen, Johnson, Johnson, and Tesser have observed in a study published in the journal Advances in Social Psychology, people have a hard time transmitting bad news to unattractive others, and most rejectees, that is to say, inappropriately infatuated people, are indeed unattractive. As a side note, In platonic friendships, one partner, especially the less attractive one, often develops romantic feelings, while the other does not. Dorothy Tenov was an American psychologist who, in her book, Love and Limerence, The Experience of Being in Love, introduced the term limerence. Limerence, which is not exclusively sexual, has been defined in terms of its potentially inspirational effects, and in terms of its relation to attachment theory. Psychologist Lynn Wilmot describes limberance as being an involuntary, potentially inspiring state of adoration and attachment involving intrusive and obsessive thoughts, feelings and behaviors, from euphoria to despair, all of these contingent on perceived emotional reciprocation. That is to say, perceived reciprocation by the object of this person's adoration, etc. So it's the perception that's important in that case, not what is actual. Professor Victor C. DeMonk of the State University of New York suggests that the concept of limerence provides a particular carving up of the semantic domain of love and represents an attempt at a scientific study of the nature of love. Limerence is considered as a cognitive and emotional state of being emotionally attached to or even obsessed with another person and is typically experienced involuntarily and characterized by a strong desire for reciprocation of one's feeling. Thus, it is a near obsessive form of romantic love. According to well-known British psychologist John Balby, attachment theory emphasizes that many of the most intense emotions arise during the formation, the maintenance, the disruption, and the renewal of attachment relationships. Such as, for example, the first attachment relationship is the infant to the mother. First there's detachment, and then there's attachment. In his book, Functional and Dysfunctional Sexual Behavior, A Synthesis of Neuroscience and Comparative Psychology, Anders Agmo suggested that, quote, the state of limerence is the conscious experience of sexual incentive motivation 
during attachment formation, a kind of subjective experience of sexual incentive motivation during the intensive pair bonding stage of human affectionate bonding. During the height of limerence, thoughts of a limerent object or person are at once persistent, involuntary, and intrusive. Such intrusive thoughts about the love object appear to be genetically driven. Indeed, limerence is first and foremost a condition of cognitive obsession. This may be caused by low serotonin levels in the brain, comparable to those of people with obsessive-compulsive disorder. All events, associations, stimuli, and experiences return thoughts to the limerent object with unnerving consistency while conversely, the constant thoughts about the limerent object define all other experiences. If a certain thought has no previous connection with the limerent object, immediately one is made. Limerent fantasy is unsatisfactory unless it is rooted in reality, the reason for this being that the fantasizer may want the fantasy to seem realistic and somewhat possible, as opposed to something that is way off in the clouds and could not be attained by any conceivable means, such as a fascination with a, an imagined mermaid, as in the story of Melusina. At their most severe, intrusive limerent thoughts can occupy an individual's waking hours completely, resulting, like severe addiction, in significant or complete disruption of the limerent's normal interests and activities, including work and family. For serial limerence, of which there are many, this can result in debilitating lifelong underachievement in school, work, and family life. In an article entitled Exploring the Lived Experience of Limerence, A Journey Toward Authenticity, published in the Qualitative Report Journal, Lynn Wilmot of the University of Sussex and Evie Bentley of Sussex Psychotherapy provided a relatively recent and more detailed perspective on limerence. They define limerence as an acute onset, unexpected, obsessive attachment to one person, the limerent object. They found in their case studies that these themes find relation to unresolved early experiences and attempts at self-actualization. The limerent, the person who develops such infatuations, one-sided infatuations, is often a person with unresolved experiences and attempts at self-actualization. Fascinating. They present an interpretive phenomenological analysis to explore the lived experiences of international limerent respondents. The condition's unique and common journey is conceptualized as a limerent's trajectory, which is characterized by generally sequential yet overlapping superordinate themes. The condition's unique and common journey is conceptualized in a limerence trajectory, which is characterized by generally sequential yet overlapping superordinate themes. The themes primarily regard experiences of ruminative thinking, free-floating anxiety, and depression temporarily fixated, and the disintegration of the self. These themes are further linked to an inclination to reintegrate unresolved past life experiences and to project to a state of greater authenticity, i.e. being truer to one's inner self. A paradigm shift 
on the part of the limerent, the infatuated person, is identified in the realization that both a real and an idealized limerent object are involved, which may relate to attachment anxieties. These researchers describe symptomology relating to obsessive-compulsive disorder, addiction, separation anxiety and depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, dissociated states, and maladaptive fantasy. Wilmot and Bentley further associate limerence with limbic brain activity. This underlying physiological component to limerence may explain the ubiquity of the phenomenon across demographics and why, in their words, it defies control. Along with potential comorbidities, it has been recognized that limerent episodes are quick in onset and tend to range from one to seven years on average, with rejection, consummation, that is to say perceived emotional reciprocation or transformation, i.e. transference to a new love object, potentially able to end such episodes. However, many episodes do not meet an abrupt ending, but rather they result in prolonged painful periods of starvation and or minimal attention, which involves persistent rejection, unreciprocation, or at best only mixed emotional reciprocation messages from the love object. Wilmot and Bentley's research disclosed five themes of limerence. 1. Ruminative thinking. One experimental subject commented, quote, The rational, non-emotional part of the limerent person recognizes that this emotional state is massively out of proportion, but is seemingly overpowered by the intensity and persistence of this emotional connection, the limerent connection, that is to say, to the love object. Two, free-floating anxiety and depression temporarily fixated on the love object. 3. Disintegration of the self. One subject defined limerence as elation and despair. 4. Reintegration of past life experiences. The respondents regarded limerence as a reintegration of past life experiences in that they appeared to begin a process of insight and potential self-growth. All respondents focused on locating the cause or triggers for their limited experiences with the onset usually described as, quote, the perfect storm situation. One experimental subject commented, although limerence seems to be totally about the love object, it is in fact totally about the person who is limerent, that is to say, the infatuated person. The person experiencing limerence has unmet relational needs, wants, desires, often from childhood, that sometimes crystallize into a laser-focused, intense desire for a single person, the love object, who does not return the love of the limerent, the infatuated person. 5. The respondents regarded limerence as an opportunity to progress to being truer to one's inner being as a more authentic self. Nikki Hayes, in her book Foundations of Psychology, describes limerence as a kind of infatuated, all-absorbing passion which is unrequited. It is this unfulfilled, intense longing for the other person which defines limerence, where the individual becomes, quote, 
more or less obsessed by that person and spends much of their time fantasizing about them. Limerence may only last if conditions for the attraction leave it unfulfilled. Therefore, occasional intermittent reinforcement is required to support the underlying feelings. Hayes notes, quote, that it is the unobtainable nature of the goal which makes the feeling so powerful, and that it is not uncommon for those to remain in a state of limerence over someone for months and even years. A famous literary example of limerence is provided by the unrequited love of Werther for Charlotte in the novel Die Leiden des Jungen Werthers by Goethe. Limerence develops and is sustained when there is a certain balance of hope and uncertainty. The basis for limerent hope is not an objective reality, but in reality as it is perceived. The inclination is to sift through nuances of speech and subtleties of behavior for evidence of limerent hope. Adam Phillips, whom Jacques Lacan's biographer Elizabeth Renesco described as, quote, Britain's foremost writer on psychoanalysis, wrote in his book On Flirtation, Lovers, of course, are notoriously frantic epistemologists, second only to paranoiacs and analysts as readers of signs and wonders. They will interpret anything in a way that feeds their hopes and their dreams of love with the unattainable love object. Dorothy Tenoff, and will remind you, sees the person who came up with this neologism, limerence, estimated, based on both questionnaire and interview data, that the average limerent reaction duration from the moment of initiation until a feeling of neutrality is reached to be approximately three years. Pathological infatuation has been described by Camille Bruno of the Graduate Program in Mental Health Nursing at Columbia University as, quote, the Blue Angel Syndrome, named after the famous 1929 film directed by Josef von Sternberg. In that film, based on Heinrich Mann's novel Professor Unrat, Professor Filth, a professor, played by Emil Jannings, becomes obsessed by a sexy cabaret singer played by Marlena Dietrich. The film tracks the descent of a respectable academic into a cabaret clown and then, ultimately, into madness. Camille Bruno reminds us that the term masochism has undergone a transformation since it was first introduced solely in relation to sexual perversion by Croft Abing in 1906. She goes on to assert that there is a difference between a normal pattern of falling in love and a masochistic pattern. Such a pattern was discussed by the world's foremost living psychoanalyst, Otto F. Kernberg. According to Kernberg, the difference between a normal pattern of falling in love and a masochistic pattern is that the masochistic personality may be attracted to someone who does not respond to their love. Kernberg goes on to observe, that the neglect and sacrifice of all others except the love object, the total self-involvement, and lack of previously held commitment to other values manifests a sense of narcissistic gratification and fulfillment in the enslavement to the unattainable love object. To state this differently, the person who falls into a one-sided infatuation with someone who does not return his love in the same manner may well be a narcissist 
who views himself positively by virtue of his, as Kernberg puts it, enslavement to the unattainable love object. Strange, but true. Interesting observation, at any rate. Robert G. Bringle, Terry Winnick, and Robert J. Rydell conducted research in the nature and effects of one-sided infatuation, for which they prefer to use the term unrequited love. Unrequited love occurs when differences in the aspirations or the experiences of love result in a yearning for more complete love by one of the individuals in the relationship, or one might say in the non-relationship, as the case may be. They note that unrequited love has been found to be more prevalent amongst individuals who report an anxious-slash-ambivalent attachment style and who were low on defensiveness. So those who are anxious and ambivalent about entering into an attachment relationship are the ones who are more likely to experience unrequited love, or as we've called it elsewhere, limerence. And the other characteristic of these people was that they were low on defensiveness, their defense mechanisms, so-called, their ability to defend themselves against this type of emotion, of this emotion welling up in themselves for this possibly inappropriate person. They don't have the defensiveness that protects and shields them from this type of thing. So Bringle, Winnick, and Rydell, in their research, were focused on evaluating the question of whether or not unrequited love is a type of romantic love and the ways in which unrequited love align with the attributes of romantic love. Is unrequited love, is infatuation love, or ain't it? That's their question. They conceptualized unrequited love as occurring in different kinds of relationships that are assumed to be located on a continuum of interdependence. There's that word again. Bearshide and Amalazors posited that increasing interdependency creates stronger, more numerous, and more consequential expectations. That is to say, expectations that something consequential will develop out of this friendship, or if it's not even a friendship, if it's simply a infatuation based on, you know, what should we call it, love at first sight. At any rate, a typical example one sees often is when an individual is infatuated with, that is to say, in unrequited love with, a person who is not interested in a physical, sensual love relationship. In this type of situation, the infatuated person will encourage his or her love object to be dependent on him, in the hope that encouraging this dependency will make the other party, the loved object, the object of limerence, to fall in love with them. Hmm, does it work? Sometimes, but not very frequently. In their 1993 study, Baumeiser, Wattman, and Stilwell found that about half of their enamored respondents reported diminished self-esteem and feelings of inferiority as a result of their plight. In their study, these researchers from the Department of Psychology at Case Western Reserve University explored unreciprocated romantic attraction by comparing narrative accounts. Unrequited love emerged as a bilaterally distressing experience marked by mutual incomprehension and emotional interdependence. 
Would-be lovers look back with both positive and intensely negative emotions, whereas rejectors were more uniformly negative in their accounts. Unlike rejectors, would-be lovers believed that the attraction had been mutual, that they had been let on, and that the rejection had never been communicated definitively. Rejectors, on the other hand, depicted themselves as morally innocent, but still felt guilty about hurting someone. Many rejectors described the would-be lovers' attempts as intrusive and annoying. Rejectors constructed accounts to reduce guilt, whereas disappointed lovers, the ones rejected, constructed accounts to rebuild self-esteem. Rejectors saw would-be lovers as self-deceptive and unreasonable. Would-be lovers, again meaning the individuals who were rejected, saw rejectors as inconsistent and mysterious. Baumeister, Wattman, and Stilwell conclude their study, published in the journal Personality and Social Psychology, with the following question, quote, If mutual love is a fulfilling, ecstatic experience, why would someone refuse another's offer of mutual love? Why would someone turn it down? They propose two, quote, tentative responses, unquote, to this question. First, people are not indiscriminately guided by the wish for love, but rather they seem quite selective in whom they love. Being a vaguely suitable partner with earnest affection is far from enough to elicit reciprocal love. And second, even when the aspiring partner, the infatuated person, is judged unsuitable and his or her love is refused, the rejector often finds the experience aversive and distressing. To refuse love, even unwanted love, seems to violate some deeply rooted and widespread aspect of the human personality, of what it means to be human. To return to the psychological correlates of one-sided infatuation, a 1991 study by Veronica Fisk and Christopher Peterson found a positive association between depression and unrequited love. In 1938, Shandor Rado, who characterized depression as the great despairing cry of love, proposed that depression was reflected in particular attitudes toward love objects, that is to say, partners or imagined potential partners. He specifically hypothesized that depressives were dependent, self-sacrificing, angry, and unrealistic in their intimate relationships. These hypotheses were strongly confirmed by Fisk and Peterson. In their study, young adults, either high or low in depressive symptoms, responded to a questionnaire asking them to describe their past romantic relationships. These researchers learned that respondents with depression more often recalled being hurt by former partners than did respondents without depression, were more characteristic of unrequited love relationships than equal reciprocal love relationships. In results published in Psychology, a journal of human behavior, Donald Smith and Marianne Hockland found that greater depression and anxiety and lower self-confidence and well-being were more characteristic of unrequited love relationships than they are of equal reciprocal love relationships. Therefore, 
Feelings of inferiority were expected to be greater for unrequited love than for equal love, that is to say, requited love. But the more interdependent types were expected to engender greater feelings of inferiority due to the greater sense of rejection and lack of fulfillment inherent in them. Imagine the following sitcom scenario. Charlie, well, old Charlie is a competent guy of below average attractiveness. And Charlie becomes infatuated with Sue, a highly attractive woman. Charlie manipulates Sue to feel dependent on him by doing things that Sue does not know how to do or does not want to take the time to learn. It is therefore easier and more efficient for Sue to depend on Charlie to do these things, which Charlie does in the hope that one day Sue will return his love. But she does not. Despite Charlie's competence in certain things, he begins to feel inferior because all his competence will not achieve for him the thing that we all want most, most of all, love. The thing that we all want most because we are programmed to want it as humans. We are also programmed to desire a fulfilled and fulfilling sensual life, which again all of Charlie's competence can never bring him. Well, maybe that's not a sitcom after all. We have to change this pitch to, if we're going to sell it to Netflix or one of those people. Gosh, I'm putting on my movie producer hat again. All right. The results of the experiments conducted by Bringle, Winnick, and Rydell describe unrequited love as a relationship providing low rewards and relatively high costs. Thus, the frequency and persistence of unrequited love may be better understood in terms of the long-term promise for outcome rather than terms of immediate payoffs. As the song warns, you're nobody till somebody loves you. That message represents a powerful motivator if persons believe that they are fundamentally deficient without love and that they can only become whole through love. Somewhere there is a fairy tale or a myth it is a little bit like the princess and the frog. I think that's the name of it. The, the frog goes around feeling that he will not turn into a handsome prince and be a real fulfilled human being and not, you know, just a frog. Not that frogs are so bad. Until the beautiful princess falls in love with him. But the trick is the princess has to fall in love with the frog before he can transmogrify into the handsome prince. And that's a tough one. Anyway, thus the plight of enamored persons, particularly in the more interdependent types of unrequited love, as we just discussed, is partially understood not in terms of the immediate net payoffs, e.g. positive and negative feelings, personal and interpersonal fulfillment in their relationship, but in terms of the incentive value of potential payoff as love increases in a relationship. Well, does the probability of Potential payoffs really increase in all such situations? and Well, not really. And Anyway, going back to their research. Therefore, the perceived desirability or value of the potential romantic relationship, the perceived probability of having a romantic relationship, and desirability of the state or benefits to the self of the potential relationship were each independently important for understanding the motivation to enter into and maintain an unrequited love relationship. For the enamored, which is to say for the infatuated person, for the limerent, as Tenoff would have called that individual, 
Pursuing the relationship as a high-stakes gamble in which the potential for high payoffs justifies the use of unscrupulous tactics, along with the risk of failure, embarrassment, and lowered self-esteem. On a lighter note, (laughs) by golly, we've all been wanting one of those. In an article published in the Journal of Social Psychology, Kimberly K. McClanahan, Joel A. Gold, Ellen Lenny, Richard M. Rickman, and Gordon E. Kulberg designed an experiment through which they attempted to increase understanding of the love is blind phenomenon. Ever heard of that one, love is blind? Well, let's check this out. Male undergraduates were exposed to, quote, infatuation induction, unquote, with an attitudinally dissimilar but extremely attractive female undergraduate. As an example, perhaps the male undergraduate was a lefty and the attractive female undergraduate was a MAGA supporter. The research has found that positive emotional arousal plays a positive role in creating attraction toward the attitudinally dissimilar female. Perhaps even more interesting, evidence was also found that attraction toward the dissimilar other was based not on a distortion by the subjects of her dissimilar attitudes, but rather on a more favorable evaluation of these attitudes. In other words, as far as men are concerned, beautiful women can change their minds about just about anything. This should serve as a lesson for anyone interested in promoting a political cause. Use attractive, sexy, desirable individuals as your spokespersons. Put them on billboards, TV, and online instead of the ugly old farts who usually appear there to talk about politics. They're they're really insufferable, a lot of them. Well, now that we've described the disease, let's move on to ideas about the cure, or at least the remediation. The remediation of one-sided attraction unrequited love, and limerence. The website Living with Limerence, posted by a neurologist who prefers to remain anonymous, so I'm not going to name her because she's anonymous or anonyma, outlines a number of steps to help one moderate or reverse infatuation. It's tough when you can't get someone out of your head, they say at this website. At first, infatuation can be a giddy and exhilarating experience. The thrill of attraction, the promise of romance, it's intoxicating. Nothing beats the rush of pleasure when you're with them, and they are happy, and it seems possible that you might be able to start something wonderful. But infatuation has a dark side. Even if the thrills are uplifting, The all-encompassing nature of infatuation can be exhausting. The relentlessness of their presence in your mind, the obsessive need to think about them, be with them, connect with them, it feels like an unhealthy craving. Ever had one of those? You know, it's best not to have one for something really expensive. Let me tell you that. It's good advice that you're getting here from Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. At any rate... It can be impossible to concentrate on everyday life. Limerence, this website asserts, is an infatuation so profound that it takes over your life and leaves all other concerns in the background. The kind of infatuation that can erode your psychological or even physical health. 
The tortured artist stereotype exists for a reason. If these extremes of emotion are familiar and seem much more powerful than a simple crush, it is likely, again according to this Living with Limerence website, that you are experiencing limerence. Given the disruptive impact limerence can have on life, it is important to try to take back control and begin to turn down the strength of romantic obsession. So, what practical steps can be taken to manage and reverse infatuation, reverse unrequited love or the tendency toward it, reverse limerence? Okay, here we go. Number one, uncertainty is a major driving force for limerence. The first stage for moderating infatuation is to start eliminating the aspects of uncertainty you can control by asking a simple but profound question. What do I really want to happen with this person, with this love object, with whom I am so infatuated? You may well be rejected. Statistically, that is the likeliest outcome in an inescapable risk of romantic life but you at least free yourself from the uncertainty of not knowing. When the uncertainty evaporates, the infatuation can sometimes follow surprisingly quickly. And you never know, you might just get lucky. Alternatively, if you have already been rejected, or are in a committed relationship, or if they are unavailable, or if any of the many other possible reasons that a relationship is a bad idea are in play, you have to be honest that it is time to break the infatuation. If you are a limerent for someone unsuitable, you have to accept the truth that you will be better off without them. Sad but true. Yeah, the tantalizing sweetness of forbidden fruit is tempting, but it's pretty miserable to be addicted to it. If you know that a relationship with this person is a dead end, be honest with yourself that you need to let the fantasy die and stop idealizing them. Get on with your life, hopefully not by choosing another unattainable object. Unless, you know, you happen to meet one. Anyway, number two, understand what's going on in your head. There are two big dimensions to infatuation. The first is about who you are as a person. How has your personal history led you to this point? What is it about this other person that connects so potently with you? And why now? What experiences in your past have primed you to respond so powerfully when you met the object of your infatuation? Limerence is best understood as an altered state of mind. The precise people and circumstances that push us into it are unique, but the neurochemistry of reward, pleasure, bonding, and arousal are common to all of us. Once we have flipped into that mental state of romantic obsession, the only way out is to disrupt the habits and thought patterns that have got us stuck in that pattern of reinforcing infatuation. Limerence, therefore, is best understood as an altered state of mind. Idea number three. Start reversing your mental programming. Idea number four. Rewrite your own romantic drama. You can do it, you know. We're all in a certain way the authors of our own lives. Be creative about your life. A major theme of this podcast, creativity. 
Another useful mental tool is to recognize how important stories are to how we understand the world. Number five, be purposeful. Finally, the best defense against infatuation is not to tackle it directly, but to focus on a larger scale, to develop a clear vision of what matters most to you in life. What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of person do you want to be with? Are you living in a way that helps you realize that dream? Good questions, good techniques, good strategies for someone caught in a one-sided infatuation or unrequited love or, as Dorothy Tenoff called it, limerence. Sounds like something that's sort of black and twisted. No, that's licorice. Okay, please bear in mind that what I have just articulated in this episode of Explore Ecstatic Sensuality is based on my experience as an object of infatuation by women who are less attractive than myself. It is for this reason that I have chosen unrequited love and limerence as a theme for today's show. And uh, let me take just a second to tell you what's coming up on Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. Next time around, next week, it's cheating. Got to get around to it sometime. Cheating what the psychologists and psychological research have to tell us about it. It may be somewhat different from what you expect. What causes a person to cheat, if you can talk about that? What are the psychological characteristics of cheaters? And after that, a major program, probably several episodes, on the subject of open relationships and polyamory. Are you ready for that? Okay, here we go. Please explore your own ecstatic sensuality. Thank you.
Thank you. 